We've walked through Paul's salutation together. We strolled through his prologue. And now we stand here to ponder this theme of what has been labeled Paul's gospel. And we have to do this before we can hike this trail into Paul's thesis. This is his outline to his thesis. These two verses here. Now, we're going to talk about several things. We're not going to speak about predestination today. Although, as we're talking, those things might come to your mind. We're not going to talk about eternal salvation. Although, as we're talking, those things might come to your mind. We are going to share and cover those things. But the reason why we're not going to do that today is because as we go through this book of Romans, we're going to dive deep into those subjects. We're going to touch on something that really just needs to solidify our faith, our justification in Christ. And that's all we need. And if we could get that settled in our mind, I believe the rest of this book is going to make just complete sense to us if we get that foundation laid. This is the title to his thesis. These verses here, these two, are to this book as Romans 8.28 is to the full canon of Scripture, as we shared a couple of weeks ago. They form what's been called the peak on the cathedral of the Christian faith. This is what everything stands on. And we'll shed some light on assurances of our great faith in Jesus Christ. These two verses are why I'm so excited to go through this book. Because it just makes us come to this place of just concrete understanding of what Jesus has actually done for us. Because I think in the United States today, it's been watered down. And we don't look at it through the Hebrew mind. We look at it through the American mind. We're going to look at being made righteous through faith. That bringing assurance and faith and the privilege of sharing our faith or viewing others through the lens of eternity. And I think when we have our understanding of where we are headed as Christians, why would we, why would we not want to share it with somebody else that they might have the same Desire that they may have the same outcome. So as we read these scriptures, it's talking about being made righteous through faith. For in it, the righteousness of God, verse 17, is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the just shall live by faith. Everyone, the Bible tells us, receives judgment. God is righteous. He's just. His handed down judgment is final. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. It is faith in that fact that makes Jesus our advocate. And then God then hands down to us our final judgment. You and I as believers in Christ, we've been judged already. Final judgment. And what's that? Salvation. It's been decided. That's the verdict. And isn't that good news? Think about that for a moment. You have been made right with God. All things are done. Behold, all things are become brand new in Christ. Paul, in, Paul is using a verse here from the book of Habakkuk, what we know as chapter 2, verse 4. 
It is the text of this epistle. The rest of Paul's letter is his exposition of these verses. This whole book rests on these two verses. The literal rending in Habakkuk's context is, by his faith, the just shall live. It could also be paraphrased, the justified by faith one shall live. That's us who have accepted Christ. The justified by faith one shall live, shall have everlasting life. In the commentary by Wolverd and Zook, it says the key clause, the righteous live will live by his faith, sparkles like a diamond in a pile of soot. In the midst of God's unrelenting condemnations of Babylon, back in Habakkuk 2.4, stands a bright revelation of God's favor that is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1.17, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.38. In those passages, the words will live have a broader meaning than in Habakkuk. In the New Testament, they mean to enjoy salvation and eternal life. In contrast with the self-reliant, bolsal ways of the right, the unrighteous, the righteous are found to be reliant on God and faithful to Him. You and I may look at righteousness as moral quality. Am I living good? Am I living bad? That's how we in America typically look at our lives. We look at it in moral quality. But in this light, we become more concerned about wrong and right behavior. The problem with that is we can begin to rely too heavily on those measurements. We rely too heavy on those measurements. How's he living his life? Oh, look at how they're living their lives. Oh, they must not be Christian because they made that decision or they voted for this person and on and on and on and on. We look at it as moral quality. And then when we look at it that way, we leave our standing with God in the rearview mirror. We don't pay attention to the accurate view that's ahead of us. See, we have to attempt to understand a little of the Hebrew mind at this time. They looked at their standing with God, not as a moral quality, but as a legal status. W.R. Smith, who's a 19th century professor at Cambridge University and author of the prophets of Israel and their place in history, wrote this. The ideas of right and wrong among the Hebrews are forensic ideas. That is, the Hebrew always thinks of the right and the wrong as if they were to be settled before a judge. Righteousness to the Hebrew is not so much a moral quality as a legal status. God, our Father, is our judge. And what is the sentence that's handed down to us right now? See, as we look at this chapter coming up, or these verses after this in chapter 18 and the rest of the chapter, we're going to talk a lot about universal sin. Universal sin. What we're born into. Not what we're doing necessarily. Those will come up but the universal sin, that we're all born sinners. See, Paul is using an Old Testament scripture to shed light on a New Testament truth. 
And you know, before I continue to go, I, I, I just get going. I, I don't know that I prayed for the message, so as that's coming to my mind, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you again, Lord, for this time, and that we could get into your word. And Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be present here, Father, because it doesn't matter how eloquent the words might uh, attempt to be. It doesn't matter what pattern we've tried to set this in. If we're doing anything without love, Lord, it's for nothing. And Lord, if we're doing it in our own flesh, it's for nothing. We need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to illuminate our minds and our hearts, Lord. We pray, Jesus, that we would set aside all of our angst, all of our uh, uh, things that we're thinking about of the day and just focus in on your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you just really speak to us and change us. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is using this Habakkuk 2.4, this Old Testament scripture to shed light on a New Testament truth. And what is that New Testament truth? That salvation is by faith, not by merit. That was actually an Old Testament truth. And down the road in the book of Romans, we will get to those points when he begins to speak about Abraham. So good. Man, we want to just get there, but we can't. We got to go through this path. See, God is just. When he makes a decision, he does not go back on his word. And so this righteousness, this righteousness that God has, this righteousness that he is, it's twofold. This righteousness. Here we get a part of it. We get God's righteousness, that he's just and right. But as we move through the epistle, the picture becomes even more clear. God's righteousness makes us righteous. It is imputed to us. In other words, it's directly paid to our account when we accept Jesus Christ. Because in Romans 3, 22, it says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is to all and on all who believe. His righteousness, this righteousness that we're talking about, this justification is twofold. He is just, he imputes that to us when we accept Jesus Christ through faith. He makes us justified through faith. J.I. Packer says, justification is a judicial act of God, pardoning sinners, accepting them as just, and so putting permanently right their previously estranged relationship with himself. Permanently right. You are permanently in Christ through faith, permanently right with God. Oh, well, what about backsliding? Oh, what about predestination? Oh, what about in this case? We'll get to those, but think about that right now, just today, because these are the scriptures we're in. Think about your walk. Well, you were previously estranged with your relationship with him. You were made right. Is that not the good news? How do we contemplate that? How do you get that into from here to here? Man, let it settle. Is this not what Paul is saying, man, for these reasons, I'm not ashamed. Because I've been redeemed. Through Jesus, God pronounces an eternal 
sentence, when you accept him by faith, justified, not guilty. Not guilty. Even though I, I should be, I'm not. That status of acceptance is bestowed upon us. It's given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you think if we would share this with somebody, not come to them and say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, accept Christ and live. You shouldn't be living that life. We had a guy outside of that concert just spouting whatever off with a sign. Is that going to lead anybody to Christ? I don't know. Maybe it will. But if I'm constantly telling somebody they're living a wrong way, how, how are they going to want to hear about Christ from me? But when I tell them, hey, through Jesus, man, you are justified with the universal sin because we're all born sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. But I have a different verdict than you right now because I've accepted Christ. And you need the same thing. In the what's been called the hymn of the initiates, also translation of G. Vermes, the Dead Sea Scrolls, in his book, he, he, he wrote them into English in 1962. They're called the Qumran literature, or the area where they were found. He writes this, By his righteousness, my sin is blotted out. If I stumble because of fleshly iniquity, my justification is in the righteousness of God, which shall stand forever. By his mercy, he has caused me to approach and by his loving kindness, he brings my justification near. By his true righteousness, he justifies me. And by his abundant goodness, he makes atonement for all my iniquities. By his righteousness, he cleanses me from the impurity of mortal man and from the sin of the sons of men, that I might praise God for his righteousness and the Most High for his glory. He's interpreting this literature in what they wrote then. Now, Paul here writes about going from faith to faith. There is debate over what he meant here. There are great commentators that disagree on what he meant, and they give many different reasons. They're all plausible. So someone wrote, the expression from faith to faith may mean from God's faithfulness to our faith or from one degree of faith to another, or by faith from the start all the way to faith from the, to the finish. And these are all plausible and all good. But in the context, I believe it to mean out of my faith into faith in Him. All, out of what I trusted in all this time into faith in Him. H.A. Ironside writes, This I take to be the real meaning of the somewhat difficult expression translated from faith to faith. It is really out of faith unto faith. That is, on the principle of faith to those who have faith. In other words, it is not a doctrine of salvation by works, but a proclamation of salvation entirely on the faith principle. And this, my friends, my family, we cannot grasp sometimes. 
It's as if we want to pull down heaven and try to understand it. And sometimes you just can't. And it's amazing the work of the Lord and what he does. You mean that's all I have to do? Yeah, that's all you have to do. The Bible says, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you shall be saved. Okay, but what else? No, there is no, no but. That's it. It can't be that simple. It is that simple. We're the ones that make it difficult. Salvation is not based on my moral quality. Now, before you think, oh, okay, well, I could just live how I want. We're going to dive into that later on in the book. It's not saying that. The Bible clearly tells us what our lives through Christ should be demonstrating. But it's not based on my moral quality. I can't clean up my life first and then come to the Lord. I must come to the Lord and guess what? He cleans it up. I don't think about the list of things I got to give up. And if that's the way you think, then your concept is off. We must accept Christ and let the Lord tell us through his Holy Spirit, through conviction, through sanctification, how he wants us to live. It's based, salvation is based upon my legal status with God. He is my judge. And when he sends down his sentence, what he hands down depends on who I believe Jesus to be. Is he my advocate? Or is he my adversary? Because if I'm not for him, then I'm against him. That's what the Bible says. If I'm not for him, I'm against him. What sentence he hands down depends on who I believe Jesus to be. To me, not to you, not to anybody else. It's very personal. Who do you say that I am? This is what he asked Peter. Who do you say that I am? It's not based on my moral quality. There is this concept that man is inherently good. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And is that what we see in the world today? Would it be getting worse and worse? If man were good, it would be getting better and better. But it's getting worse and worse. Because of universal sin. Man is not inherently good. How do we know this? James 4, 1, 2 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. Just look at the war that's going on right now. What's it all about? Money. Just follow the money. And you'll follow the source. What's the driver? Envy, lust, because we're not, we're in universal sin. We haven't accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. So before we can understand our need for Christ, we must come into conflict with sin. We must understand what it is. That's why when we come at it from a point in the United States of moral quality, well, a lot of people just say, well, just let me live my life. I want to live how I want to live. Well, that's fine, but you need to understand that's not what I'm talking about. It's not about the moral quality. Those things will be changed. It's about the heart. 
believing in Jesus Christ. Because the root of the problem is universal sin. Before we can understand our need, we're going to, in these last few verses, we will come into conflict with sin. That's why it's going to be heavy for a few chapters. But then after that, we come into the light in the rest of the book. See, not the outcome of our sin. It's the what it's what it produces in our lives. It's what we are doing. The root of the problem, again, is universal sin. Because all sinners, we're all sinners. It's we're born and bred into sin. And you might sit back and think, well, that stinks. I never asked for this. I never asked to be born into sin. That's why I think I'm good. And if I think I'm good and living a good life and doing the right things, well, great, leave me alone. But the problem is that's not what the Bible teaches. You may be great living the best life, but I've heard it said you could be the best person in hell. You could be the best person in hell if you don't have Christ. The root of the problem, universal sin, because Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That puts us all on the same playing field. Doesn't matter, rich, poor, you have more, you have less. We're all in sin. Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world through Adam and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And how do we know that there's sin in the world? Because everybody dies. There's death. Death is the proof there is sin in the world. So just as in a courtroom setting, we have an adversary, the devil, the accuser. We don't like to call him the devil. He's been portrayed as this little red guy, you know, with a pitchfork. He's the accuser, though, and he is real. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. I've said this many times in the past. Well, if I go to hell, at least I'll be with friends. And man, what a terrible statement. I know we were joking and but it's a real thing. It's a real place. And if I would get that into my mind, without Christ, that's where I'm headed. And that's where we'll head. This adversary, the original word, means against, against justice. It's like a prosecuting attorney arguing a case. He's an adversary, a prosecuting attorney who's against justice. He doesn't want justice for you. He doesn't want Christ to justify you because he wants to pull you in where he's going to be sent. And you will have all your faculties there. You will have all your senses there for eternity, forever, where the Bible says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal fire. He's the accuser, the adversary who brings formal Charges. This is what the word actually means in the Greek. As they are a bind, as they are binding to exact penalty, 
Satan acts as such an adversary, bringing the lawsuit of darkness against believers for their, their eternal damnation. But offsetting this is the advocate, the perfect sacrifice of Christ. When he's on the cross, he said, it's finished. It's done. And if you have me, that's the verdict. Done. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. They are talking in legal terms. The judge, the advocate, the adversary, the justification, everything that's handed down. This word advocate is the same word used for the helper of the Holy Spirit, the parakletos. To become close beside and in proper legal terms, advocate, it's an advocate who makes the right judgment call because close enough, he's close enough to the situation. He's the advisor, the helper. He's the attorney, the lawyer. Someone giving evidence that stands up in the court. And Jesus, being our advocate, stands up in the court and says, Father, here's all the evidence. Right here, in my hands and in my feet. I died for that one. I died for that one. And guess what? They are mine because they have accepted me by faith. That's my child. When all those accusations are hurled at us. And so we have to ask ourselves as we're standing in this court, am I trying to represent myself in court? Even as a Christian, sometimes we try to represent ourselves in court, forgetting that the verdict has already been handed down to us. But if we haven't accepted Christ, am I trying to represent myself in court? Or is Jesus my advocate? See, Jesus can only be my advocate if I believe by faith that he is my Lord and he is my Savior and he died on the cross for me. And it's personal. Because believing that by faith makes all the difference. When I accept Jesus as my payment, the judgment handed down to me is everlasting life. Do you rest in that? When things are just whirling around in your daily life. Remember, I have everlasting life. I'm temporary here. I'm just walking through. I'm just a pilgrim in a foreign land. It's a hard land. I don't like it all the time. It's rough. And my feelings overtake me many times. But man, when I remember these things, I had somebody ask me yesterday, was having uh, coffee with a friend yesterday morning. And as he's describing the things that are going on in his life, which were a lot and very heavy, he asked me, Larry, when you're going through these things, what brings you peace? And I said, this brings me peace, knowing where I'm headed. And then that can make me be thankful. I was sharing with him. I'm then thankful for all he's doing in my life. I'm thankful that I have food in the refrigerator when I get home. Should the Lord tarry, my kids are home, 
all in a comfortable warm bed with a roof over my head. And that brings me comfort. Since God is righteous, that judgment that's handed down to me and you as Christians is not overturned. How can it be overturned? No, they're mine. That one's mine. How can that be overturned? Satan can appeal to God. He can hurl accusations left and right in court. And doesn't he do that? That's why we're told to guard our minds. Because that's where he attacks us many times. And he tells us, oh, you're worthless. Look at what you did. Oh, you're a Christian and you did that? Can you believe it? Does that not happen to you? Maybe it just happens to me. But man, the thought comes into your head. And then Satan, man, he's right there to just nail you. Whatever it is in your life. He'll hurl these accusations in court, but he can do that as much as he wants to. But the Lord will never overturn his verdict. He'll never overturn that verdict. It is final. What, does Jesus have to die again for you? No, here he did, and I've accepted that. And I like this. In Papua New Guinea, the Neo-Melanesian version of the New Testament, or the pigeon version of the New Testament. H.K. Bolton was writing, and he says, We salute the strokes of genius, such as the translation of justification. Because in their Bible, they said, God, God, speak of me all right. I am all right with the Lord. I am all right in Jesus Christ. I'm all right with the Lord. We'll bring a little levity here, but I'm all right with Christ. I'm all right with God. Now this brings assurance as we continue in here, this righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The Jew to, it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In verse 16, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. This mindset of this justification that we have should yield in our lives fruit of assurance and confidence as we walk in this world. This is how we live, by faith, not by emotion, not by my moral quality. Those things, knowing this, will help me live in that fashion, a good, holy life. But it doesn't make me holy living that. What makes me holy is this justification. And it should be because of that, that I desire to want to do good works for my Lord, to want to live a certain way for the Lord. And if you're in Christ and you're living a certain way, you know that conviction in your heart? That's the Holy Spirit telling you, uh-uh, let's clean that up now. And that's good. And we should desire that. Because he keeps us right. And what's the result of living that life? That others might come to know me through your life. This is the good news. Knowing we're justified in Christ. Man, is there any better news? And understanding this helps put us into action. Makes all the difference in our walk with Christ. 
in the library of Rudolstadt, Germany, there's said to be a glass case that holds a letter written by Martin Luther's youngest, uh, youngest son, Dr. Paul Luther. And it reads, in the year 1544, my dearest father, in the presence of us all, narrated the whole story of his journey to Rome. He acknowledged with great joy that in that city, through the spirit of Jesus Christ, he had come to the knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. It happened this way, as he repeated in his prayers on the ladder and staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind. The just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as his chief foundation for all doctrine. Because in his world at that time, in the Catholic Church before the Reformation, he was told it was by works. And when these scriptures came to my mind, came to his mind, it changed his whole outlook. It changed the Protestant church. It started it. A new work. It goes to the Jew first, then to the Greek, to everyone else. And it's not because the Jews were better and the Greeks were worse, the Gentiles worse. It, it wasn't because of that. It is the right order. It is right that, that the salvation message went to the Jews first. It was an order of time. We need to remember these are God's chosen people. They had the oracles of God, and it was through them that Jesus, the Messiah, actually came. So why not get first dibs? It's the right and proper way. Jesus himself said that salvation is from the Jews in John 4, 22. Albert Barnes writes, the Messiah had come through them. They had the law, they had the temple and the service of God. And it was natural that the gospel should be proclaimed to them before it was to the Gentiles. This was the order in which the gospel was actually preached to the world. First to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And in Acts 13, 46, it says, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you, be, you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And Paul was quoting from Isaiah 49, 6 in the Old Testament, which was the plan all along. To go, there's universal sin, there's universal salvation. But you have to accept what Jesus has done by faith. We didn't get the choice about sin, but we get the choice to make by free will if we will accept Christ into our lives. And have we? This salvation, it means deliverance. Deliverance from what? Deliverance from God's wrath. We are delivered. Jesus took it all upon himself on the cross. He was separated from the Father so that we would never be separated when we accept him into our hearts. I like, well, to the Jew first, I'm getting ahead of myself. To the Jew first, then to the Greek. This is what salvation means. Wearsby writes, salvation is a major theme of this letter. Salvation is the great need of the human 
race. It's rescue. Rescue from eternal death. We get it through Christ because it has been brought to everyone. God doesn't ask men to behave to be saved, but to believe by faith. And it's through this power that we read here, this dunamis power, where we get our word dynamite from. This gospel message is powerful because of the power that it carries with it, resurrection power. And God is power. He's omnipotent. The power that raises the dead is the same power that gives eternal life. And we are spiritually raised from the dead. And in salvation's invitation, it was designed to be extended to all people. Our Kent Hughes writes, Think of how the righteousness revealed in Christ motivated Paul. It is possible for men and women to stand sinless before God. It is possible for men and women to stand sinless before God. It is possible to know that one has eternal life. It is possible to be free from the frustration of trying to earn righteousness in heaven. The sole requirement is faith. Here's the greatest news ever proclaimed. What a great reminder for me and for you. This would bring somebody into a place where they could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. See, we have assurance and confidence of our own salvation. We are assured and confident that this deliverance that we have is not only for me, but for all who believe. This is the good news. This should be our driving force to tell anyone and everyone. Now we can understand why the Apostle Paul can be so bold because he has an eternity in view, just like that Coast Guard serviceman, Alan Emery. He had it in view. And he desired it for somebody else. When you're looking at somebody else's life, how do you see them? That doesn't know Christ. It, we should pity people that don't know Christ. It should break our heart. Because we know where they're going. We know where we're going. And they can have the same thing. We get the privilege and honor of sharing our faith. And if we view others through those lens of eternity, that will change everything. When we view others through this lens of eternity, that there is the possibility that they may go to hell without Jesus, we then set aside any hindrances, big or small, to share our great faith with others. And Paul was certainly not ashamed of the gospel. He had been imprisoned in Philippi in Acts 16. He was chased out of Thessalonica in Acts 17. He smuggled out of Berea in Acts 17, laughed at in Athens. He's regarded as a fool in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he's even stoned in Acts 14 in Galatia. He went through all this trouble. Why? Because he knew people would go to hell without this justification, without this verdict. And unless you and I understand that, we're not going to care for the lost soul. We won't. I often read this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Maybe you have too. I often read this and saw this and been preached at for years. As an accusation, not more, 
not as an exhortation. It was always taught to me as, as an accusation. You guys should be out there. You guys should be telling everybody, look at what I'm doing. I'm doing it. You should be doing it too. Just tell somebody. Don't worry about it. Just take a step of faith. And those are all good things. But that's how I used to feel about it. Like when he would say, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it was always preached or taught to me as, well, look at the apostle Paul's not ashamed. That means that you're ashamed. Have you ever sat there and felt like that? And you just shrink in your chair. Well, I haven't told anybody about Christ for a while. You haven't? I think you have. But you don't realize it. People that are watching your lives, watching how you're living, watching what you say, watching what you do. Yes, you're going to make mistakes. That's okay. Thank God for his grace. The verdict is in. But he has grace upon us. See, I used to think if Paul is not ashamed, maybe I am because I'm not out there like the Apostle Paul. I'm not living my life like the Apostle Paul. Am I living my life like, you know, you ask all these questions. And over the years, I've heard the scripture used many times to back up that point. Many times pastors have used it to encourage us to get out there. And, it, and that's a good view. And they have cited Paul's letters to Timothy as proof because Timothy was timid. He needed to be exhorted and encouraged to go out and fulfill that work that God has called him to do. But here's the thing. Timothy was already out there doing it. He just needed a little bit more encouragement. One, But I like this view. One writer has suggested that this is a figure of speech called litotus. It's a figure of speech featuring a phrase that utilizes negative wording or terms to express a positive assertion. Or statement like, hey, go do this task. It's not rocket science. In other words, this is easy. And one writer points out, this is what Paul's using, this figure of speech. And in this light, when you think about it that way, it's as if Paul, and he's suggesting, the writer here is suggesting that in that light, the Apostle Paul is saying, I find this a, a privilege and a high honor to share what I have. And I think that changes the whole perspective. If you consider this a high honor, man, I think you're going to be willing to do it more. Think about what you do for a living or those tasks that you have to do for those who might be retired. <laughs> but those laborious tasks to you, those things that you think, man, I don't want to do these things. This stinks. This sucks. I don't want to drive all this way to a job. I don't want to do what I have to do to make ends meet. When we think about things that way, those responsibilities can cause us the most angst sometimes. Like this is a chore. I don't want to do it. But what if... You looked at them or perceived them as a privilege because of what they might mean for the other person that you have in your life. I go to work, work all these hours, drive all these miles, because when I get home, my kids, man, they have food and they have clothes and they have beds. What a privilege. What an honor it is to do this. Does that not just change the whole view? 
changes the whole view. What a privilege and an honor it is to share with you my great faith, what I've been brought out of and what I'm in. Yeah, but Larry, I've seen you do this. I've seen you do that. Yeah, I have. And sometimes I still do it. But man, I've been cleansed. I've been justified. And you can have that as well. If we perceive them as a privilege, we've got to look at the outcome for other people. What's the outcome for their life? It's my privilege to share. In that way, those things become things that we're willing to endure rather than reluctantly putting up with. We are willing to endure them. See, this scripture to me, after... I've been studying this. It's no longer an accusation against me. Oh, you, you must be ashamed. Paul's not ashamed, so that means somebody's ashamed. Somebody's ashamed of sharing the gospel. Isn't that how you read? That's how I read it. But no, it's an encouragement. Hey, Larry, I find it a high honor to share this with other people. Do you? And if I find it a high honor, I'm going to want to share it. Look what the Lord has given to me. It becomes a work of devotion and a loving response to what Christ has done for me. So we've worked our way back from verses 17 to 16 in an effort to see how Paul could make that statement up front. I find it a high honor to share. And let me tell you why. Because I'm justified. I'm right with God. And the verdict is in, and there's nothing anybody can say or do to change it. I may live my life at times where I could drive somebody away from Christ, and God forbid. And I'm sure that has happened in my life, but His grace. And you don't think that He's going to bring somebody else along to make up that difference? Absolutely. And we'll be in heaven going, we'll all sit in heaven going, man, did I get that wrong? My thoughts were here. My thoughts were there. He's not ashamed of the gospel. God's righteousness brings us justice through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Let it settle in your heart. It must settle in your heart. Because if you come back next week, and I'm praying that you do, we're going to deal with some heavy topics. Very heavy topics. So we must be solid in our understanding of where we stand with the Lord. I'm justified. It's done. I'm going to slip up. I'm going to fail. But man, he's right there to catch me and forgive me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this thesis statement that lays out the whole book of Romans. And we want to take our time through it so that, have we, that we have a good, solid understanding of what you want us to learn, of what you want us to know. Please baptize us with your Holy Spirit. Change us, Lord. And if we have lately, Lord, been feeling as if we're not saved because of the way we've been living, Lord, reaffirm that in our hearts because it's the same Spirit, Lord, that lives in us that lives in you, that lives in us, Lord, those who have, uh, of us who have accepted Christ. 
that can't be taken away. I do not believe that you would take that away. The verdict is in in my life. It's settled, done. It is finished. And now your unhindered love can flow in and through my life, Lord. I just pray for those who have never accepted you. I pray, Lord, that you would truly show them who you are. That they might, Lord, if they truly see who you are, how can they deny you? How can they turn you away? May their hearts not be hardened, Lord. And give us as Christians, Lord, that desire to share our faith with other people, Lord. Not in an accusatory way, but Lord, because we love their soul. That's what we desire, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen.